We've all heard that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But is that true? That's sort of a truism in Christianity. We say it all the time, right? But is it true that God loves sinners? This Psalm, Psalm 5, seems to contradict that. And what does that mean? If God hates sinners, what does that mean? What does that mean about who God is and how we should respond? This is a very interesting and provocative psalm, so I'm excited to get into this with you today. So we see at the beginning here, this is a psalm of David, Psalm 5, a psalm of David. And I just want to get right into the text here and kind of go through this and try to answer that question of, does God hate sinners? So the first thing we see is we see a prayer for God to listen. This is verses 1 to 3, a prayer for God to listen. And I love, I I often when I'm reading, I'll, I'll underline the verbs, like the repeated verbs in a section. And here the verbs stand out to me. He says, give ear, consider, give attention. He's asking for God to listen to his prayer. He's calling on God to listen to him so that he will act. And he wants God to consider his meditation. That word groaning in verse 1 is the same word for meditation that we saw in Psalms 1 and Psalm 2. So he's been acting like the righteous man in Psalm 1. He's meditating on God's truth, on who God is, and he's now calling God to respond to his verbal cry for help and to his thoughts, the fact that he set his, his heart and his thoughts on God. And then in verse 2, he, he says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. It's important to see these, these titles of who God is because this tells us a lot about who the Lord is. He says he's my king and my God. This is the first reference in the Psalms to God as the king, right? So we, we know in Scripture that rulers are given by God, but that God is the ultimate ruler, that we don't put hope in anyone other than God himself. Psalm 146, 3 through 5 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So we see here where our hope should lie, right? There's lots of rulers on this earth, but God is the ultimate ruler. And so our hope should never be in those who are rulers, temporary rulers on this earth, but it should look to God as the ultimate king. He's the one who's in charge, and he's the one who has ultimate authority. And in verse 3, he says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So this is interesting because Psalm 3, we said, was a morning psalm. It was something that was for the morning. Psalm 4 was an evening psalm, right? It was someone who's going to sleep and is looking to to rest in safety. And here in Psalm 5, we again have a reference to the morning. So there's sort of a theme in these first few few psalms. Some have linked this to, or tried to link this to the the daily morning sacrifice. So every day for the the Jews, they would have a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. So this may have been one that was tied to that. We don't know for sure, but it seems like there's there's some truth in that. So then we get to kind of the, the meat of this, this uh, passage. So we have the initial call to God to, to listen, and then we have this, this, the middle section, which is that God hates the wicked and delivers the righteous. So God has a, has a relationship with the wicked that's a certain way, and it gives this righteous man, right, gives him hope, it gives David hope. So look at verses 4 through 10. We'll start with verses 4 and 5. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. 
So this is interesting, okay? So he's saying very clearly that God doesn't delight in wickedness and that God hates evildoers. So our original question I asked at the beginning, does God, does God hate the sin but love the sinner? Is that, is that true of God? Well, in a sense, yes, that seems to be true. In the sense that God is merciful to those who are wicked. Um, we see a lot of references in Scripture that God cares for people who are wicked, that he gives what was called common grace, that every person in the world benefits from the sun rising or from the rain falling. So some verses for this are Acts 5.45, or sorry, Matthew 5.45, Acts 14.17, Acts 17.25. These are some verses that remind us that God gives blessing and good things to every person. The fact that you and I are alive right now, that we have, that we have breath in our lungs, is a sign that God is giving his grace to us. It's a common grace. So yeah, we could say in some sense that God has a love even for the wicked because he's so patient with them. But in another sense, no, God doesn't love the sinner. And in the sense that God's love, his patience for that sinner is going to run out. In the sense that God has a special love for his people that is not given to those who spend their entire life opposing him. So God does hate sinners. He is opposed to those who are opposed to him. And it really couldn't be any other way because his very character demands it. And just because we see God being patient and merciful in the short term doesn't mean we should assume that God is going to love those forever who hate him. He's going to just be patient with them, and he's going to love them in the same way that he loves those that he's redeemed, his people. So it makes sense um, also, I think, to read this in light of the surrounding context. Okay, so we see there's this opposition against the evil, that God is going to thwart those who are evil, that he hates those who are evil, and in light of the context of the surrounding Psalms, we have a good reason to believe that, that this is related to the Absalom story. So Psalm 3 ties it to Absalom. I think Psalm 7 might indicate there's a connection to that story of Absalom. So there's all these connections. And so for David, in his context, he may be saying that, God, you oppose someone wicked like Absalom. You're going to thwart his purpose. And we see in that story of Absalom that God does that. But what matters the most, according to this, is that God delights in you, right? Verse 4, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. If God's delight is not in wickedness, then David can be confident that Absalom's efforts will fail. That's all that matters is, does God delight in you? Because you can be the wealthiest, most powerful person on earth. But if God does not delight in you, whatever temporary blessing you have is going to be stripped away from you. You'll have nothing left. So this reminds us that our confidence in approaching God is based on his character, that God hates wickedness and that he loves those who are righteous. Um, We know that God can't coexist with evil. That's what this is saying, right? Back to verse four, he says, evil may not dwell with you. That word dwell is kind of literally translated as visit. So evil can't even visit with God. It can't even temporarily be around God because that's, that's his character. That's how holy he is. We see more too, if we look at verse five, he speaks to how the boastful shall not stand before God's eyes. Uh, the boastful is speaking to someone who's prideful, right? And why is pride so offensive to God? It's because it exalts the wrong person. It's because it's, it's pointing to the glory of man when God is so much more glorious. 
it'd be like an ant boasting of its strength when it's next to an elephant, right? Someone who's nothing trying to lift itself, exalt itself up over someone who is great and powerful. And so the proud are ultimately threatened by God because they can't stand God being greater than them. And so the way they live their lives is to oppose him and to try to tear down the glory of God. So we see God's opposition to the boastful, to the evildoers, that God's patience with the evil will one day run out. In verse 6, we see, again, this, this theme of warping the truth, which is so key to the practice of evil. The wicked person is someone who warps the truth, who hides the truth from people. And again, a reminder here that if you're a righteous person, the truth is always your friend. The truth, even if it doesn't reflect well on you, the truth is always your friend. We should always embrace the truth. We should always live in the truth and in the light. But if you're wicked, the truth is very often your enemy. You want to hide the truth or warp the truth because it goes against your purposes. And so we, we see this, this pairing in verse 6 of the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Why would the verse put bloodthirsty and deceitful together as if they're one thing? Well, because the greatest way to destroy somebody is to hide the truth from them. It's to tell them a lie. It's to make them believe something about themselves or about God that is not true. That's the easiest way to destroy somebody else. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is, this is a terrible thing to invert the truth. That's what our world is constantly doing. The propagation of evil is the propagation of lies. And of course, when we see Satan referred to by Jesus, the, the longest discourse he has about Satan is when he's calling him in John the father of lies. Satan is defined by his opposition to the truth. And so when you're deceitful, when you lie and undermine the truth, you also destroy and you kill people in the long term. So this is God's opposition to those who are evil, but then we also see, conversely, his embrace or his welcome of the righteous. Verse 7, he says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So this is a good reminder. The way to come before God is through his love. So David has confidence to come before God, not because he is superior and righteous, first and foremost, but because God is loving. He's given covenant, steadfast love to David and to his people, and so David can approach God on the basis of that, that God has a special love for those who believe in him. Then he, he goes back to his enemies in verse 9. So he has this, this you know, confidence that he can come to God, he can bow before him in his temple, and then he goes back to his enemies in verse 9. And this is a very famous verse that is repeated in Romans chapter 3. But verse 9 says, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So he's defining here what these deceptive, evil people are like. And again, there may be a near reference of people that David is dealing with, maybe in the Absalom context. We, we're not totally sure about that, but... There also is a general reference for us, right? We know that people who are evil, wicked, deceitful are defined by these same kinds of things, right? So there's, there's, it says their inmost self is destruction. So 
this desire of destruction is fundamental to who they are. They want to tear other people down. They want to destroy good things. It says their throat is an open grave. So that means if their throat is an open grave, then inside of them is death. That's the idea, right? So the, the open grave, it contains death. So their heart is full of death. And yet they, they can speak in a way that is very good. They flatter with their tongue. So they sound really good. They're, they're really smooth talkers. But inside, their intention is for death. And it's interesting that in Romans 3, this is applied in a sense to, to all people, right? That we're all guilty, and this is a reminder of it, that we often in our own lives, you and I have embraced lies. We've told lies. We're deserving of the judgment. We're deserving of the hatred of God that these sinners are. And of course, we know the answer, and we're going to talk about that at the very end here. We know the answer through Jesus Christ, that we can approach God because of his steadfast love, not because of our righteousness. But then he prays, verse 10, right, that God would declare them guilty, that he would cast them out. So we see, we see in this section God's hatred of the wicked and his love and his welcome of those who trust in him, those that he's given his love to. And then at the end, we see a prayer for God's deliverance, verses 11 and 12. Um, he says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. So this reminds us of Psalm 2, where at the end of it, he says, blessed are those who take refuge in this son, the son of God, the king. So there's taking refuge in God. And as a result, when you take refuge in God, you're going to have joy. You're going to have protection. You're going to have exaltation. All of these things are going to be um, the, the, the blessing of having God as your refuge. In fact, he ends in verse 12 with saying, for you bless the righteous, you cover him with favor as with a shield. So that term blessing again comes up at the end of a psalm, reminding us that this is what the psalms are all about, providing blessing to God's people through this truth. So God blesses the righteous and covers him with favor as a shield. This reference to a shield is a, a full body shield. God provides full cover, full protection for those who trust in him. So what do we make of this? What are some takeaways from a passage like this? Well, again, we see God blesses prayers. <laughs> do you need to be reminded of that again? I think you do. I think I do. That there's a reason why this is such a theme over and over again in the Psalms. is because we forget. We don't often act in a way as if God blesses our prayers. So do you expect God to answer your prayers in the right way and at the right time? Do you go to him regularly in prayer? Another thought is, well, how do, you, how do you start your day? We've seen the morning psalm in Psalm 3. We've seen an evening psalm in Psalm 4. And again, the reference to the morning. How do you start your day? I'm not of the mindset of, you know, before you get out of bed, you have to, you know, pray to God. You have to have time with God. Or you have to read your Bible before you get out of bed. Um, but I think the first few minutes and the first few hours of your day are crucial, right? If I was reading my bed in, in bed, my wife would hate me because I wake up very early, so I'd wake her up. But I think it's very important to think about how you start your day. Do you start your day focusing on God? Do you have time of worship, of prayer, of scripture reading? That's absolutely crucial to set your heart on him at the very beginning and the very end of your day. Another question I have for you is, do you believe that God hates sin? 
do you view your sin in the same way that God views your sin? Uh, God's very clear here about how he hates evildoers. Um, do you take that seriously? Do you want to live your life in a way that honors God? Do you, do you get as upset with your sin as God would be with your sin? Do you view your sin, your sin the same way that God does? And then I think the, the last thing I would say is there's hope for the person that God hates. And the reason is because God poured out his hatred on his son Jesus on the cross. So just because you, you may read this and you may say, I'm an evildoer. I'm a liar. I oppose good things. I'm deserving of God's judgment. If so, praise God that you realize that, that, that's, that you can say that's true of you. But don't stop there. Don't just read the verses that God hates evildoers and think, well, that's the end of the story. It's not. God sent his son and he poured out his hatred on his son on the cross, not because Jesus deserved that hatred, but because he was taking the hatred that belonged to his people. He was taking the judgment that you and I deserve. And so when we see this, we can remember in verse 7 that we can approach God in his house through the abundance of his steadfast love, specifically through the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. Jesus paid the price so we could approach God in confidence, not fearful that he's going to destroy us, but confident that he loves us as his very children. So, so have confidence to approach God. And remember that God will be victorious. God's purposes will never be thwarted. So are you on God's side or are you living for yourself? That's the key question that we have to ask again and again.